and I said two things. I'm a mom, and I'm worried about my daughter cycling in Vancouver. And the other thing I said is I'm an occupational hygienist, and in occupational hygiene, there's this hierarchy of controls. And the top kind of control, the best kind of control, is an engineering control, and the least of which is making changes that really eliminate the hazard. Right, okay. And then the least important control or least effective control is a personal protective equipment like a respirator or earplugs that just tries to minimize the damage. Uh, and that's kind of what we do in bicycling with a helmet. And yeah. That's Professor Kay Teske this week on the Dandelion Podcast. For many of us, riding a bicycle has always gone hand in hand with wearing a helmet. When I was growing up, we lived on a country road in Sarnia, Ontario, and whenever I wanted to jump on my bike and ride down to a friend's house, the primary instruction from my mom was to always wear my helmet. This emphasis on the helmet made me think two things, that there was something particularly dangerous about riding a bike, and that only the helmet could keep me safe. Of course, like many things, when you begin to look into it for yourself, you find out that there's much more to the story. Today's guest is the perfect person to help with that. Dr. Teske is an academic occupational hygienist at the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. Her research has covered common workplace injuries like back injuries, uh, the occupational risk factors for Parkinson's disease, and the relationship between water quality and gastrointestinal illness. She's also the founder of the Cycling in Cities Research Program at UBC that has turned out a wealth of publications on bicycling safety and the best ways to motivate more people to ride. In November 2015, Kay and her colleagues published a bicycling hospitalization rate study in which they found, among other things, that the presence of helmet legislation, a helmet law, is not associated with hospitalization rates for head and neck injuries, indicating that there are other factors that have more influence on these injury rates. The debate over the decision to wear a helmet while riding could be a heated one, and Kay certainly saw her fair share of that when these results went public. From my perspective, one of the biggest hurdles to overcome in this debate is the fact that a lot of times we conflate the personal decision to wear a helmet with the value of mandating their usage by law. I think we can almost say conclusively at this point that mandating helmet usage has a net negative effect for a number of reasons. Uh, It makes people feel like cycling is inherently dangerous. It lowers the overall number of people choosing to ride. And again, that's for a few different reasons. And it takes the emphasis away from something that would truly improve bicycling safety, which is better infrastructure. Now, the personal decision to wear a helmet is a bit trickier, as there are many studies that point in opposing directions. I think the best we can say at this point is that there's no consensus on the bicycle helmet as an effective strategy for reducing head and neck injuries. Kay gets into this a bit more, but if we're concerned about the risks of riding a bike, there are a number of other things we should be talking about well before we get down to personal protective equipment. Beyond that, Kay breaks down the other findings from her aforementioned study. She talks about the recent rise in cycling-related research going on in North America, and the increasing role women are playing in conducting that research. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Kay Teske.
sitting here with, with Kay Teske. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, I'm um, delighted. I, I, I'm particularly grateful because I, I really find um, your area of research, as I understand it anyway, quite interesting. Um, uh, I, I pulled this, this little sentence off your, your bio, off your, your personal UBC page, and I, and I just wanted to, uh, to start with this. Um, so this is, you know, uh, uh, speaking to what, what you do. Um, so it says, Dr. Teske's area of research interest is exposure assessment with a particular emphasis on improving exposure response estimation in epidemiology and empirical modeling of factors that influence exposures. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could start by just kind of breaking that down for the layperson and then speaking to how you got to this particular focus area. Right, so I'm actually what is called an occupational hygienist. And out in the real world, what an occupational hygienist does is measure exposures to things like noise and chemicals, uh, radiation on the job, and then tries to control those. But I'm an academic one, and mm -hmm. so my, a lot of my career has been measuring those things for studies of health effects. And when you measure something poorly, then finding the relationship between the exposure and the health effect is hard. Mm. So um, what would be, uh, so say you were trying to figure out if radiation caused, ionizing radiation caused lung cancer. If you just asked a person, have you been exposed to ionizing radiation? Most people wouldn't know or right. would have a hard time knowing. Um, and so then trying to analyze based on a yes-no answer to that question whether or not they ended up with lung cancer from radiation exposure w over a population of people expo uh, exposed or unexposed, it would be hard to see that relationship. But if they wore a dosimeter on their lapel while they were at work in a nuclear power plant, which people working in nuclear power plants do wear, then their uh, radiation exposure is going to be very well measured. Mm. And so then, to be able to look at the people who had high exposure to radiation versus the people who had low exposure to radiation, and looking at whether or not they ended up with lung can cancer, that would be, first of all, a good test of whether or not there was a relationship. And if there is a relationship, you'd be able to see a very clear dose-response curve. Right. So that's the kind of work uh, that I have done for my career, is really helping um, with epidemiologic methods, improving those methods of measuring exposure so we have the best chance of detecting an uh, exposure disease relationship when mm. it really does exist. And what got you to, what to that? sparked your interest? Well, when I was, I finished uh, university, I did an economics degree uh, way back when, in the early 70s, and uh, it was a time of great political turmoil, very similar to now, and um, I'd, I came from a very middle class family and I thought, you know, I might want to try after doing that, doing a job that's much more kind of industrial and so on. So for a while I actually worked here in, in Vancouver at a pillow factory. Oh, wow. I was, I was always sewed my own clothes when I was young and I used to, um, and so I was very good at uh, being a tailor seamstress and one of the things uh, pillow companies need to do is stuff pillows and then sew the seams of the of the pillowcase um, and so I did that and I was in I was in a part of this very small factory um, 
all by myself in a very gloomy room, dark, dark room with a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling, trying to sew. And it just gave me, it opened my eyes to the conditions that some people work in. Right. And um, it made me think, it, there was a lot of noise in certain parts of the plant, not so much where I worked. But in certain parts of the plant, I, you know, I was dealing with this incredibly low light situation. I had there were feathers everywhere. I was covered with them, and it was overall probably not a plant with a lot of hazards other than the noise. But it started me thinking about it, and um, I went to a course after work after working hours, uh, presented by a guy named Al Riegert, who was um, an engineer who worked at the Workers' Compensation Board back then, and he talked about this field, industrial hygiene, which I'd never heard of before. Mm -hmm. And I had a very science and economics degree, and I thought, wow, that's, that was inspiring to me. I thought, wow, I could use my kind of very diverse uh, science background in a field um, that would potentially have this nice prevention health impact and so I went back to school and uh, did a master's degree in this area. Eventually I did a PhD in this area. And um, I worked part, uh, for part of the time as uh, an inspector for the government, uh, looking at exposures in workplaces. And it was fascinating. I mean, there's so yeah. many interesting ways that people get exposed to hazards at work that you know, people in the middle class like me had no idea about. Of course. And it was, it was great to learn about it, and it was great to help measure those exposures and come up with ways to prevent them, control them. Right. It's interesting, like I, uh, my early years, when I, when I was going to, uh, through university in the summers, I would work in an oil refinery. Mm. And uh, uh, there would be times when, um, they would come across uh, the radio or, or through some type of memo, they would say, hey, we, we think you may have been exposed to asbestos. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's possible. And, mm -hmm. and I just, uh, you know, yeah, you learn at an early age what that means, what it could mean later on in life. Um, and then it just, uh, you know, now that I'm out of it, I just think about the, the people that I worked alongside that, you know, that was what they did. Um, that was their life their life's work and these exposures to potentially toxic uh, chemicals are just happening all the time in, in certain workplaces and, and like you said people in the middle class people have very little exposure to that and some have no idea at all. Right, absolutely and uh, oil refineries are definitely not just um, uh, places where people can be exposed to asbestos. I mean there are many many solvents and different right. grades of oil and lots of other uh, chemical exposures and certainly noise exposure exposure right. is a huge issue in so many different places d including refineries so. right yeah uh, benzene came up and, mm -hmm. and uh, sulfur dioxide i think was another mm -hmm. one that came mm -hmm. up all the time but yeah um sour gas yes yes you'd always drive by a certain area and get that big whiff of uh yeah a lot of fun um <laughs> Uh, I wanted to, to move to, so if we could fast forward to the work that you're doing uh, for Cycling in Cities. Um, how did that get started? And um, I mean, take it away from there. What, uh, what, what are you guys uh, engaging in most of the time? 
Um, well, should I start with how I got started in it? Yes, yeah. please. So I'll, it's a bit of a story. Um, I always cycled. I love to cycle. I used to cycle out to um, my university when I was an undergrad. I cycled to work here. And I noticed that in the 1990s that uh, the city of Vancouver was at that time starting their residential street bikeway program. And so I would see these signs uh, going up, this is a bikeway, and I kind of thought, you know, this isn't really um, what they do in Europe, because I'd spent mm. some time in European centers. And my daughter was born in 1993, as a late mom, and I started thinking about cycling with a different lens once she was born, because I started thinking about cycling with her. And I felt that those residential street bikeways, although they are places where I rode, I often rode anywhere on residential streets, I started thinking, well, is she going to be seen, first of all, because you're still low, there's lots of parking on both sides of the street, right. lots of drivers who are still very impatient on residential streets, and of course getting to a school, which might be alongside a busy street or you have to cross the street. So I started thinking about all these things and wishing that things were more like they were in Holland and Denmark and some other places that I visited in, in um, Northern Europe. While my daughter was young and I was working like crazy here in uh, UBC, I just didn't have time. But I always thought, you know, once I'm a bit, she's a bit older and I have a bit more time, I think I might like to do some bicycling advocacy mm. here. And when she was about 10, I noticed an ad in the Courier for one of the, or for all the city committees. So there's a whole series of committees. At the time, there was something called the Bicycle Advisory Committee. Mm. So I, you have to apply. So I filled out an application, not really knowing what they were looking for. And I said two things. I'm a mom, and I'm worried about my daughter cycling in Vancouver. And the other thing I said is I'm an occupational hygienist, and in occupational hygiene, there's this hierarchy of controls and the top kind of control, the best kind of control is an engineering control and the least of which is making changes that really eliminate the hazard. Right, okay. And then the least important control or least effective control is a personal protective equipment like a respirator or earplugs that just tries to minimize the damage. Uh, and that's kind of what we do in bicycling with a helmet and yeah. so on. So that's what I put in my application, and lo and behold, I was um, invited to be a member of this committee. And that committee is, it was quite interesting. It, it met once a month. It's very structured. It has um, a staff member who records the minutes, and uh, they meet at City Hall. People from the planning department or the transportation engineering department come to meet with the committee and say, this is what we're thinking of, what do you guys think? And when I joined the committee, it was two-thirds men and one-third women, mm -hmm. which is uh, not too far off the proportion of uh, riders, uh, people biking. Um, but when I was there, I started hearing things that never I'd never heard before. Uh, so for example, both the many of the people on the committee and the engineers were saying things like that the things I was asking for, which was separated bike lanes, were actually less safe than riding on the road with motor vehicles. What was the rationale of 
Well, um, there's actually, there's this whole um, <laughs> theory, I guess, that's been promoted in, mainly in the United States, but also in many other English-speaking uh, countries, Britain as well, mm. called vehicular cycling. Its most famous proponent is a guy named John Forrester. He's a traffic, uh, transportation engineer based out of uh, California. In the late 60s, early 70s, when um, I guess he was a race, uh, bike racer too, and he, they were starting to put in uh, separated bike lanes or even painted bike lanes in places like Stanford and so on. And he started actively fighting against it. And part of the motivation, I think, was they didn't want to be relegated only to the separated routes. They wanted to have the right to the road. Right, okay. Um, and they also, but there were a few studies that came out in, around that time and later that seemed to show that cycling off-road was had higher risk than cycling on-road. Most of those studies were looking at sidewalk riding versus road riding because there weren't uh, separated facilities. And so there were, it turns out there, we found the same thing in our studies that sidewalk riding was more dangerous than riding on the road. Right, but right. There, there's, that we did not find that for separated uh, bike facilities. Anyway, this was a dominant philosophy. It had completely taken over the um, uh, transportation planning and engineering. It was kind of written into standards in Canada and the US, and I'm not sure about uh, England. And people had adopted it, like not just um, these transportation engineers, but people in the cycling advocacy world. Hmm. And the other thing they said is not only is it safer, but if you're trained by our method, um, you'll start to see that you would rather ride on the road. Um, so if you're trained as a cyclist? If you're trained uh, in, their, in their vehicular cycling method, uh, okay. you'll start to see. And once you become more comfortable, you'll realize that that's safer and so on. Mm. And a lot of what they train uh, people in uh, is being predictable, uh, making sure that you use hand signals, making sure you're visible, that you're not weaving in and out so that right. you're less visible. There's many sensible things to this. Uh, idea, but they took it way too far in my view. But in any case, way back then, I was still just part of the bicycle advisory committee, and I was just hearing these things for the first time. And I'm, as an academic, I do know that it is quite uh, possible for the gut feeling that you might have as an individual, which is what I was at the time as far as cycling was concerned. I didn't know the cycling research can be very wrong. Hmm. And so I was open to the idea that what they were saying was true and what my gut feeling was, was wrong. But I wanted to see, so I, you know, I'm an academic. <laughs> I thought, okay, let's do a review of the literature and sure, see yeah. what's going on. So that's what I started doing. I had an undergrad student, I often get undergrad students coming to me and say, I need to do an undergrad research project do you have something to propose? And someone came by and I said, okay, let's see what we can find in the injury literature and in the cycling motivation deterrent literature and do as much of a review as we can and see what it says. And my overall feeling after doing that was there was a lot of research that was 
needed to be improved upon. Mm. I mean, all research starts somewhere, and it was clear that it needed to be improved upon. So the main things that had been done uh, were done by comparing sort of on-road riding without any infrastructure to maybe a painted bike lane and maybe a, a sidewalk or a bike path. And there wasn't as much splitting out of all the different possibilities of infrastructure as there needed to be. And so I could see opportunities for doing research uh, that would help elucidate the issues. Uh, and I thought, okay, I'm a researcher. I can see opportunities here, how to make me feel more comfortable with results. So why don't I start along that path? And that's right. how the whole program started. And it just kind of grew and you, yes. you have um, uh, research that's, that's obviously still active, that, that ongoing, right? Or well, um, I'm getting near to retirement, huh. but I had, um, uh, that's not to say I won't continue doing research. That's the part that, of my job that I would be <laughs> sad to leave. And I so I will, but um, the truth is two of my um, graduate students, one who's uh, took this on as her main research for her PhD is one of, that's uh, Megan Winters. Uh, she's got a phenomenal research program now at, at Simon Fraser University. Mm -hmm. uh, highly recommend that everyone follow her research. And of course, she's got lots of publications from when she did her PhD with me. There's another um, uh, of my PhD students who actually did her research on occupational health, looking at Parkinson's disease and the occupational causes of Parkinson's disease. But while she was doing her PhD with me on that issue, uh, she helped design our injury study for the bicycling. Megan worked on the mo motivators and deterrence part, but um, this woman, Anne Harris, who's now a professor at Ryerson University in Toronto, uh, she did that. And she's been, uh, she had a few hard things happen to her at the beginning of her research career at Ryerson, but it seems like she's now decided that she might prefer to continue with that avenue okay. um, and traffic injury and so on uh, with bicycling as one component. So we'll see how her program of research develops. But there's lots of, um, there's so much interest in this research. It's kind of interesting what I told you <laughs> earlier about how mid middle class people don't know much about occupational health. <laughs> but when I started doing um, bicycling research, the amount of student interest was just phenomenal in comparison to the student interest in occupational health. I mean, most people who come to university are from middle-class backgrounds. They're not attuned to that. Um, often the people we get in our occupational hygiene program are like you. They've, they've had a summer job or something like that mm. in an industry and their eyes are open in the same way mine were. Right. And then they decide to take on this field. But uh, so many more people at university bike and yeah I, I was just overwhelmed with students who want to be involved in this and I've had to turn down so many people especially because especially recently as I'm trying to close my <laughs> own uh, s uh, group of students and yeah I only have one student left at the moment so but in any case um, yeah it's it, I think now that people are doing research in bicycling, it's going to continue to expand. And it's quite interesting in the US, there are a number of researchers uh, 
the whole field of bicycling research has just boomed in the last 20 years. And it's interesting to see that a lot of the, res the uh, dominant researchers in the US are women as well. I think there's sure. a group of us who want to be able to cycle more and want to be more comfortable cycling. And um, yeah, so it's been a motivator for women to get involved in cycling research. And it's kind of interesting that two of the uh, students that uh, came from our Cycling in Cities program uh, are, are women as well. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to dive into the, uh, the, the hospitalization study that, that uh -huh. you mentioned. The, the, that, that was published uh, towards the end of 2015, is that? Yes, that's right. Right? Yes. Um, can you, I guess maybe we should start, um, before we get into the, the findings, I mean maybe just start with Introducing the study in general, and, and what the the motivating the, the motivation was to, to to do it. Okay, so I always said I would never do helmet research because when I started in the bicycling field, um, what I noticed when we started doing our in initial reviews is there was there were hundreds of studies about bike helmets and about what, how to get people to wear them, whether they reduced head injuries. Uh, severity and so on. There are just so many studies and some style, some of the styles of studies uh, for the helmets are very easy to do. Um, and so it makes it a quick and dirty kind of study, especially for people who work in emergency departments. Mm -hmm. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on the issue that's harder to study, which is bike infrastructure, route types and so on. So we looked at that to do with whether or not different route types motivated people to cycle or deterred, right. and we definitely found that there were, it did make a difference. Yeah. And then uh, even more difficult to study is whether certain route types uh, resulted in higher injury risk or lower injury risk, and once again we found they, there is a big difference. And that was a very difficult study to design and carry out, it was expensive to do, and it hasn't been um, replicated but there are you know there are other styles that have been done but I think I'm still very proud of the design which Ann Harris deserves a lot of credit for mm. um, it's a it's a very good um, study design and it may be replicated in a couple of other studies including one of kids um, in a couple of cities in Canada which is I'm looking forward to seeing that done by okay. some other folks anyway um, uh, but uh, I do get asked to review articles from time to time, and one of uh, I got asked to review an article by a woman named Jessica Dennis. Uh, she was a PhD student in at U of T at the time, and uh, she had published an article a few years ago that I was very familiar with, a, a few years before, that was about whether or not um, cycling was reduced in places where helmet laws were put in. So mm. across Canada there are very different helmet laws. Right. And um, she looked at uh, data to see whether or not the places where helmet laws were uh, put in place reduced cycling, because that's been a very big concern about helmet laws, especially in Australia and New Zealand. They showed dramatic drops in cycling after helmet laws were put in nationally in both places. Mm -hmm. um, possibly related to the heat, especially in Australia. I mean, wearing a helmet is very uncomfortable in hot weather. So, um, sh but I was asked to review a different article by her, and this was looking at 
uh, it's called a time series analysis, and it looked at before and after uh, helmet laws were put in place, was there a change in um, head injury risk in that before and after, and it does a kind of time series that's looking for the trend over time, and there was a reducing trend of head injuries everywhere in the provinces with and without, head in, uh, with and without helmet laws, but was there a, a, dis, a break, even greater drop after a helmet law was put in? Okay. And when she looked at that, she didn't see a drop. And it was really interesting to me because in the whole helmet area, what's really disappointing is there's a bit of received wisdom that it's just obvious and it is obvious in some ways you put a helmet on your head why wouldn't it reduce head injury and head injury severity but it's become a mantra without any questioning and so to have someone who published this well-known article that kind of is a defense of helmets and has been used that way because in Canada at least it didn't look like helmet laws decrease cycling so mm -hmm. that's good news and then to publish an article that seemed to show on the other hand that there didn't seem to be a drop in head injuries after the law was put in place I thought there were a few things that people would on both sides of the helmet issue would question with her analysis um, and I put that in my review uh, she answered she, she's blind to who's reviewing it but uh, she answered the review with you know we couldn't do it with the data at hand and I'm not a believer in oh, okay then refuse to publish just because mm. you can't do it with the data at hand you just acknowledge that in your limitations in the study and but you still publish because it's still of interest. You should put things out in the public domain as okay. long as you admit the, the issues. Right. No, no research is perfect. So she, as soon as it was published, I immediately contacted her and said, I was one of the ones who reviewed your paper and I still think there's lots of interesting stuff and I think there's a different way we could look at this issue. Instead of looking at um, the time trend before and after, let's just compare provinces with and without the helmet laws mm -hmm. at a time when the helmet laws in every place, every province was stable. Right. And, and then the, one of the issues I was worried about was, you know, BC looked terrible in that data. And I thought, what about mountain biking? Maybe that's contaminating the BC data. Is there a way we can tease out the mountain biking? It was very hard to do. And I don't think even the way we came up with uh, to do it is not perfect, but um, it's at least a, more of an attempt than she was able to do in the initial study that she did. So that's what we decided to do. We thought we could look at a few different issues. We look at, um, so hospitalization data mm -hmm. is available from across Canada, which is great, and it's from the same source. It collects every single hospitalization uh, from a bike injury in the country. Um, so that's great, so we had that for every province we could get data about how much cycling was done in every province from a survey, huge survey, 65,000 people um, interviewed by Statistics Canada every year, 
which is phenomenal. So we chose a six-year period of hospitalization data, a six-year period of, of this interview data about whether people biked or not. Mm -hmm. And we were able to calculate a rate of head injuries and every kind of injury for, um, for that six-year period for each province and then compare you know, whether or not it differed by male and female, whether it differed by whether or not there was a helmet law in the province or not, and then also compare by, based on how much cycling is done in each province. Because there is a, um, evidence, pretty consistent evidence from other um, studies that where there's more cycling, there's a lower injury rate. Right. And that there's also data for that for walking too, where there's more walking. There, uh, there's a lower injury rate. Mm -hmm. So we compared, th we looked at those, um, those, we also looked at age. So we looked at those four issues uh, across provinces. And uh, yeah, that's what the study was about. And it was during a six year period where there were no changes in the provincial helmet laws in, uh, across Canada. Everything is stable. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I mean, you came back with, so I, I just, I tried to review some of the, the findings this morning. Um, so uh, more males and females uh, are hospitalized from an injury. That's the first. Yes, more males and females are hospitalized, but it's, it's important to then ask the question, is that just because more men than women ride? Right, right. So what we calculated was not just the counts, not just the number, uh, hospitalized, but the rate. Mm -hmm. So per, uh, I can't remember what the denominator we <laughs> used, I think it was million, per million male cyclists, uh, how many were hospitalized? Per million female cyclists, how many were hospitalized? So it was a rate. Right. And so we corrected for the amount of cycling. And even when we did that, the risk or the rate of injuries, hospitalizations to male cyclists was twice as high as the rate of injuries of female cyclists. Right. So very they were much higher risk. Yes. Th uh, very important clarification, yes. And, and I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but does that, uh, that, that seems unsurprising. Like that <laughs> yes. seems very familiar when you look at um, other activity, when you compare the, the biological sexes, um, it, it seems like males are more likely to engage in what we may consider risky behavior mm -hmm. generally. Is that yes, and that's absolutely true. But I, I like to take that a bit further because it's, it is true they behave in more risky ways, but it's really in interesting to look at cycling and say what is it that they do differently mm. um, that makes it more risky. So there are two things that have been measured in a number of different studies that show differences in risk taking behavior between men biking and women biking. Of course, on average, not everyone. Yes. But men tend to ride more quickly on average mm -hmm. than women. And men are more willing and do ride more often on the streets that have been shown in our research and other research to be higher risk streets. So uh, busy streets with no bike infrastructure or busy streets with painted bike lanes um, so women tend to choose uh, residential streets or separated infrastructure more frequently. So it's useful to do that next step, like why? Not just the generic 
risk-taking versus not, but what is it that they do differently? Right, right. Because men may, if they are told what is more risky, especially men often tell me, come up in my talks and say, you know, when I became a parent, I started behaving differently. Sure. And they're more interested in preserving themselves for their kids. And yeah. so everyone needs the opportunity to know what is the risky thing so they can do something about it. I mean, government needs to know because they have a responsibility to build things properly. But I know that once I did our, our research, I started riding differently because now I knew where it was safer to ride. And so I behaved differently, and I didn't want to keep that knowledge to myself. I mm -hmm. wanted everyone to know. So then are, are, are you saying then that males are less likely, in general, of course, to seek out this, this knowledge uh, than, than females would be? I don't, I don't know that that's true. I, I, you probably want to talk to, there's a great psychologist <laughs> who does uh, research on bicycling, uh, Ian Walker in the uh, UK, it's terrific stuff. But, so that's more for psychologists to deal with. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but for sure, there have been measurements showing that people, men and women ride in different places and at different speeds on average. Right. And, but that's not to say that given the knowledge, they might behave differently. It's possible they would, especially right. if they were uh, parents maybe. And when we look at, so when we look at where people want to ride, we see big, see that uh, men and women rate different types of routes identically, the same order, but the safest route types, men and women rank the same. But when we come to the more dangerous route types, like busy street route types, men rate all those root types higher than women do. So women are much more likely to say, I'm not even going there. Men are willing to go there, but they actually would prefer the separated routes. It's just, they're willing to take that extra chance, but if they were offered the separated routes, the safer routes, they would rather have It'd be those. be a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and the second, um, the second higher mode share means less hospitalization. So yes, so the safety sense. in numbers uh, hypothesis, or and the finding that many other people have found, was borne out in our research. I should mention that safety in numbers, the idea that risk goes down with more people cycling. Uh, people also think there may be the reverse numbers and safety. Hmm. In other words, you get more people cycling where you provide better safer infrastructure right. and probably there's a bit of a virtuous circle there so more people cycle where there's better infrastructure more people cycling means that cyclists are more visible to drivers more drivers are also cyclists and aware of the issues right. so you, and more cyclists mean you've got more people lobbying for better infrastructure right. so there's this whole virtuous circle yes so I mean the, the first two really no one has too much of a, a, an issue um, taking in and, and accepting. Um, it's the third one that, that the helmet law did not change the rates of hospitalization for, for head and neck injuries that um, can get people a little bit riled up. Yes. Uh, and I've, uh, what I find frustrating about these types of, when I, when I hear people uh, say there's a debate on radio uh, about helmet law or, or an article about it, 
what seems to happen more often than not is they'll start with we're going to talk about the, the general value of having a helmet law and it will go into um, the value of an individual deciding to wear a helmet. So mm -hmm. two very distinct things, but the, I, I find the argument kind of goes into, uh, I mean, the person on the pro-helmet side saying, well, you know, of course I'm going to wear a helmet. Why would I, why would I not wear a helmet? That doesn't make any sense. It's, like a, it's, a, it, it's more personal than it is just about the general value of, of having helmet use mandated. Right, there's so many issues in this, and it's a very interesting question. And I really welcome anyone who's listening who's has a very strong feeling about helmet laws to open their mind because it's one of the more fascinating areas, uh, and it's got so many issues. It's got ethical issues. It's got freedom issues. It's got public health issues. There's so many things. So. Maybe I should start with what our research found. So, and I'll try to explain how it differs from other uh, helmet research that is the easier research that I mentioned mm. before. So our um, research looked at the rate of head injuries given cycling. So it's the rate of head injuries per cycling trip. And we compared that between provinces with helmet laws and provinces without helmet laws. Mm -hmm. And you can't see a difference. We graphed all the different rates. And um, when I show that graph to people and ask them to see if they can see a difference between the helmet law provinces and the non-helmet law provinces, they usually just sit and stare at it and their eyes <laughs> yes <or laughs> and they can't see a difference and that's what we found in our statistical analysis too that there was no difference in hospitalization rate per bicycling trip uh, for head injuries uh, brain injuries for provinces with helmet laws and provinces without and just in case people are wondering whether or not um, helmet law provinces have different helmet wearing rates mm. yes they do mm -hmm. on average there's about twice as much helmet use in provinces where there's a law compared to those who don't which is a justification for the law it actually works in making people wear helmets more but then the question is does it work in reducing brain and uh, head injuries so, but the other side of it is that the main research that has been done on helmets is not the same question. It's if you're in a crash and you're injured, are you, is your injury more likely to be a head injury or a different kind of injury? Mm. And in that case, if you're not wearing a helmet, you're more likely to have a head injury amongst injured people than people who are injured and were wearing a helmet. They're more likely to have other kinds of injuries. So there's no question, it's been repeatedly shown that if you're in a crash and you hit your head, that helmet will mitigate your head injury. You could still have a very severe head injury because the crash was so catastrophic. Right. You could still die because your head injury was so, so catastrophic, or the other injuries to various organ systems were so catastrophic. Like if you're hit by a truss, truck or a bus, or even a car at a high speed, a helmet may not help you, right. even though you're wearing it. 
your helmet may even be thrown off if you're hit hard enough. So there's all sorts of, um, I would say that there are sometimes we hear notices about uh, helmets will save 85% of head injuries. Really the data from one study showed that, but data from other studies rarely show that. It's more like 40 to 50%, so don't have so much faith in your, in your helmet. Right. But so the difference is, if you're riding, what is your risk of a head injury versus if you're in a crash, what is your risk of a head injury? Right. And what w I would have thought before I started looking at the literature a bit more and looking at f the few studies out there that are like ours, I would have thought that if you studied people having an injury and going to the hospital, and whether or not they were wearing a helmet and whether or not they had a head injury, I would have thought that represented also that bigger question of if you ride, what is your chance of being an, having a head injury? But some of the data that's out there that make me start to question this is from these safer countries like um, Holland and Denmark. First of all, the risk of death in those countries from bicycling is one-half to one-fifth of what it is in North America where so many more people, such higher proportions of people, wear helmets. So why is that? I mean, head injuries are definitely kind of more likely to be life-threatening than some other kinds of injuries, but here they were so much less likely to die of course they have better infrastructure. One of the reasons I wanted to study infrastructure and we found these great differences that hey if you had protected infrastructure like they did mm -hmm. you were going to be much safer. But then we have this a number of different studies seeming to show that something else was going on that maybe when you ride with a helmet could it be possible that you're more likely to get into a crash in the first place? I never would have believed that before. But there's growing research that seems to show that that's a possibility. So for example, a study was done here by a, a civil engineering prof who doesn't care about helmets at all. <laughs> he was trying to test a video method that he does. His name is Tarek Syed. And looking at car traffic and all sorts of different things and in that video method one of the things they wanted to see is could they see bicyclists versus cars and then could they tell who was a bicyclist wearing a helmet versus not and then they can easily measure speed with these video methods and one of the things they measured was what is the speed of cyclists with helmets on versus speed of cyclists without helmets. Well it turned out that the speed of cyclists with helmets was about 50% faster that's a huge issue because if you're riding 50% fa faster, you're more likely to be in a crash. And if you are in a crash, the injury that you're likely to sustain is likely to be more serious. Right. So there's evidence. People have done um, studies, randomized control trials of people wearing helmets for the first time versus not. Now, of course, you know whether you've got a helmet on. It's not blinded mm -hmm. like a drug trial. You can blind people. But, you know, randomly assigning people to wear a helmet versus not, I think the study was done in Denmark where helmet use is very rare, they found that the people who were assigned to wear helmets were riding faster. They didn't tell them they were going to measure their speed, but they did. 
and they were riding faster. So that's interesting. You randomize people. It's not just people who originally chose to wear a helmet because they are a fast rider. These are people who didn't know their speed was being measured after being randomly assigned to wear a helmet or not. So there's evidence that people wearing helmets are doing things differently. Then there's the study that Ian Walker, the psychologist, did where he rode for thousands of kilometers measuring the distance of cars from him with right. when he was doing different maneuvers, riding further out from the curb or not, uh, different kinds of vehicles, trucks versus cars, how close they got to him. And then he also did two things that no one would have thought of. He rode with a helmet versus not. He also rode with a long blonde wig <laughs> versus not <laughs> to imitate being a woman. And he found that people on average rode a little bit closer to him, or drove a little bit closer to him when he was wearing a helmet versus not. An assumption maybe of drivers that that person's a bit more protected or a bit more competent or who knows. Yep. And he also did this cool experiment in a lab with people playing computer games uh, that involved, could involve uh, risky moves in the computer game. So, you know, no real risky moves. And he asked them to wear a hat, like a baseball cap, some of them, randomized to baseball cap or bike helmet, hmm. right? Just to hold some other piece of equipment on, on, the, the, on the hat, on the head. Didn't, you know, remark on the helmet versus baseball hat, just like this is equipment for that. He found that people who were wearing the bike helmet took the more risky moves in the computer game. So surprising. So there is a growing body of research that this idea of risk compensation, that when you're more protected in some way, that you might take more risks. And that may be a partial explanation for us not seeing uh, a difference because if, even though if you're in a crash, your head is more protected with mm -hmm. a helmet on, maybe just when you get on the bike with the helmet on compared to without the helmet on, you're taking more risks that give you a chance, higher chance of being in a crash. Mm -hmm. So this, I mean, it's fascinating. It's, it, I, I hope that people will think about this. It's a really interesting issue. And it was funny, I went riding on the new Arbutus Greenway with my daughter yesterday. She just came back um, from her university studies in a different city and she'd heard me talking about the Greenway. And we rode, and I tend not to ride with a helmet on. I like having a sun hat on because I'm very pale and I worry about skin cancer. So um, we were riding without helmets and on the Greenway, nice, quiet place. Yeah. And uh, there were a few others who were riding without helmets. We ride slowly. I have a kind of a slow bike. And um, it was amazing that the only people who ever passed us were people with helmets on and they were going very fast and they were often taking risky moves and I said to my daughter I said you know I've gone from supporting the helmet law to doubting whether it may be as effective as I thought it was uh, to questioning whether it should be a law so people could make individual choices and not be you know deterred potentially from cycling if it made a difference to them allowing people to make different choices about what kind of headwear they want and now sometimes I think 
maybe we should ban helmets some places <laughs> because maybe people are being encouraged to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. We don't want that type <laughs> of cycling that is that comes with the helmet in certain mm, areas. Yeah, so it's kind <laughs> of, yeah, so anyway, I, I mean, it's, there are many different ways of thinking about it, but I certainly encourage everyone who's listening to have an open mind and think about this as a very inter interesting scientific and ethical, um, political, public health question that has many, many facets um, that have value to think about. It's right. not as cut and dry as I used to think, and I think that many people still think it's so cut and dry. Do you, I mean, do you feel like you've had, so here's my frustration a lot of the times is people will uh, ask me about my decision to not yes. wear a helmet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I will, so uh, I mean, you just laid it all out and it, it took a fair bit of time to do that. Yes. <laughs> but people tend to want, you know, a quick digestible reason for why you personally have decided not to, to wear a helmet when they see you out riding your bike. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I mean, I find that it's very difficult to, to fulfill that desire, to give them just this quick reason why I, I want to talk for 10 minutes about why <laughs> I decided it was a long process and I went back and forth on it for a while and, and I ultimately came to this decision based on all these factors. But attention spans are shorter and, and we don't normally have time to, to get into these things as, as long as, as we are now. So is, I guess I'm wondering, is there uh, a way that you found success in communicating your, your research in, in little quick digestible hits for people that, that may feel you know, differently or haven't researched it themselves or, you know? I don't think <laughs> anyone is convinced quickly. This is, and even me, for me, it took a long time. But I guess for me personally, the thing that influences me and I always ask people is I think I make better decisions about cycling. I choose better places to ride. I do other things to make myself safe that I know about that are probably much better for my safety than if I were wearing a helmet. Mm. And so I always ask people if they're wearing a helmet, just think about if you weren't wearing a helmet, would you do things differently? My student, uh, now Dr. Megan Winters at SFU, she once told me that she had her helmet stolen when she was downtown. And she debated whether to take the bus home or not, but she knows that it's good exercise and she likes it. And she told me, you know what, Kay? I took a completely different route home because she didn't have a helmet. So she chose a safer route. Right. So that is risk compensation. If you know, if you think your helmet is going to protect you, and then you do things that are more likely to potentially get you into a crash, that's not a good thing. So you need to, every person may be different in that way. Some people may be so cautious that they ride very carefully, slowly, um, on separated routes, and they still want the helmet on to give them extra uh, benefit. But I think there are people out there who think, 
I've got my helmet on, and there's a lot of public health messaging that's just dead wrong. This 85% thing is, it's, it should be banned. In fact, U.S. Uh, bicycling advocacy organizations uh, uh, called the Center for Disease Control on this issue and said, you know, you guys are overplaying it. And I worry that when we overplay it, people are more willing to take risks than they would just with a helmet, but knowing that it's only 40 to 50% uh, chance of mitigating their head injury if they're in a crash. Right. Um, if they think it's 85%, and then there's a lot of miscommunication about how many injuries are head injuries. Some people say most injuries are head injuries. That's not true. There's 75% of injuries are non-head injuries. That these are hospitalized injuries, so serious injuries. So it's really important that we communicate these things properly. And you want to be able to protect against all injuries, and that's not done with a helmet. So yeah. And I mean, it seems like the more we focus on the helmet as the the primary protector for a uh, a cyclist, it, the less we focus on the, what, what you mentioned earlier, the the actual the engineering fixes that mm -hmm. that really make a, a big difference. Uh, in the long term. Yes. Uh, we're right up at two o'clock here and I, I don't want to take more of your time. I wanted to, to get into more of uh, infrastructure because um, I know you're excited about that too, but. How um, we can go for another 15 minutes? Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to definitely, so uh, uh, I, I rode here, we're, we're in your office at UBC. I, I started my journey at Deep Cove today. Oh, wow. And I was thinking on the way here, I, I feel like I've, I've touched every piece of cycling infrastructure that, that we must have in, in Metro Vancouver. So I, I know you've done work on this and I'm, I guess I'm wondering how, I was thinking, how do we measure the relative utility of, of different types of cycling infrastructure? And given that decisions on, on what to implement uh, in a given place are confined to politics and cost and a lot of times decision makers ability to to get reelected uh, so so how that decision appeals to their base of support um, how do you think about uh, the decisions to, to implement certain types of infrastructure in, in different places the the utility of, yeah. of them well I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get into the economic side but um, when you think of it, uh, bicycling infrastructure uh, affects two things. It affects whether or not your risk of being in a crash is higher or lower, and it also affects whether or not you're actually even going to make the decision to cycle. And what's wonderful about our two pieces of research on this area is it turns out that the types of infrastructure that people want to ride on most, so uh, off-street bike paths, alongside street separated, physically separated bike lanes also are very safe infrastructure and yeah, they motivate people to cycle. Right. So that has two effects. It, it certainly reduces risk of injury, but it also by increasing cycling, which is increasing physical activity, reduces the risk of a whole host of chronic diseases of our time. So uh, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, depression, certain kinds of cancer, especially um, breast cancer and colon cancer. 
I mean, that is wonderful. So I like to say that this is good, great cycling infrastructure has primary prevention of two different public health risks, traffic injury and these chronic diseases of our time. There are very few interventions you can make that have such wonderful potential impact. And what's interesting about bicycling is that there's huge pent-up demand. And we know this from a couple of points of view. One is that if you look at the different modes of transportation, women, well, females and males make up half the population each. Mm. Driving is about half and half. Walking is half and half. Transit is half and half. But guess what? Females cycle at a quarter. A quarter of cyclists are, uh, are females, three quarters male. So there's a pent-up demand from females. But there's more than that. We know that from looking at differences both between countries, say 25% of people's trips by cycling in Germany or in um, Holland and Denmark compared to he here only about 1% in Canada. Mm. But then you look between provinces, BC has about 2% of trips on average versus other provinces, 0.3% of trips in the Maritimes. Then you look with across cities, Vancouver, 4% of trips, Surrey, 0.3% of trips. Then you look within Vancouver, some areas less than 1% of trips, some areas 15% of trips. Hmm. It's all about the infrastructure. Right. And even some people might say, well, cold places. Well, in Montreal, they have some areas that have 20% of trips, Montreal. So it's really important what kind of infrastructure you provide. It makes a big difference. There's huge pent-up demand for cycling. People love it. I mean, you get to do, get the thrill of being outside, enjoying the outdoors, which you get from walking, which is consistently higher than cycling here, right across every measure. So we are willing to be outside, even in Canada. But cycling is so much lower. But people like to be able to basically fast walk on wheels. Right, right. <laughs> Wind in your hair. It's fun. Mm -hmm. Most people love it. Huge pent-up demand. So, yeah, infrastructure makes a huge difference to that. And for politicians, you know, where these changes are made, it's very rare for people to clamor for them to be taken out. It's much more when they, someone like Doug or Rob Ford takes out cycle lanes in right. Toronto, immediately there's a clamor to reverse that, which they're doing now. They're building separated lanes in Toronto. They're building separate, separated lanes in Calgary. In Edmonton now, it feels embarrassed to be behind Calgary. They're putting in separated lanes now. We're, yeah, well, I mean, we're definitely <laughs> trending in the right direction, mm -hmm. for sure. It just, yeah. it seems like it's such a, uh, such a struggle. Every little mm -hmm. piece of infrastructure needs to be debated, and, and uh, it's, it's always hotly contested between people, and opinions are strong mm -hmm. on either side, and it just... Uh, I mean, especially for you, who's, you're you're actually in the you're you're doing the research and you're you're getting these findings of of what's out there, what the potential is, but then the practical application of it, 
it, it just, it, it, it seems so, the progress seems so slow. It, yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, in comparison to, for example, a city in Spain, Seville, they put in, um, I think about 170 kilometers of separated bike lanes alongside major streets in a two to four year period. <laughs> so that to me is the way to go, just mm. go for it. And they saw uh, cycling go from a less than half a percent mode share to about uh, uh, six to nine percent, depending on how it's measured. So huge change in cycling with a dramatic program. That would be great, um, but it is interesting. The, this kind of infrastructure is starting to be built into transportation engineering standards. Um, it's just happening in Canada. It's uh, just happening in the main transportation engineering standards in the US. Um, there's a city standard uh, organization that already has it in. You're starting to see it become in the mainstream right. um, in a way that was hard before because transportation engineers had these standards that were based on this old vehicular cycling idea where you shouldn't put this in. And they, what were they supposed to do? So I think uh, things are going to change a lot. Uh, it does take political courage at the beginning, but then it's interesting to think that in Edmonton, it started to take political courage to not put it in. Right? Yeah. They were starting to be embarrassed by what was going in Cal on in Calgary. And I think their program of installing the lanes got less pushback because of that embarrassment. Right. And you see all sorts of strange places in the U.S., in Tennessee, in Kentucky, in Oklahoma, and Texas, starting to <laughs> do this kind of thing too. And now um, Seattle and Portland are competing with each other and competing with San Francisco. I mean, Portland was famous for having high cycling, but they actually had very few separated lanes on their busy streets. They had a great residential street bike yeah. network similar to what Vancouver has had for a couple of decades. Right. So, um, and meanwhile, Vancouver has about 15 to 20 kilometers of separated lanes compared to Montreal, which has well over 100 kilometers. So, I think. I think um, there's a, I can sense a momentum change and a little bit less pushback and when people who are reluctant cyclists get the pleasure of riding on some of these separated facilities and they think, oh, that was so nice, um, they start being the ones say, welcoming this. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you ever if you live here and you move out, yeah, you yeah. realize that you took it for granted because it's, yeah. it's quite something. Yeah, and Surrey's doing great things now. Right, right. I, I mean, I guess it's all about as a city who you compare yourself to. That's yeah. what it seems to come down to now. <laughs> um, okay, just to, to wrap up, I suppose, is there any research that's ongoing now or any research, uh, new research that you'd, um, you'd want to draw people's attention to or, or get more people to, to look into? Um, well, what I would say is a great new study uh, that um, the team at uh, Simon Fraser is doing is I'm peripherally involved in is looking at the new bike share system mm. here in BC and they're looking at all sorts of things related to it so uh, including the helmet issue uh, one of the interesting tidbits that has recently come out is uh, it's very common for bike share systems in other places where there's no helmet law to find that people using the bike share system uh, wear helmets much less 
commonly than people riding their own bikes, mm -hmm. about half the rate, and yet the bike share system seems to be having lower injury rates, which kind of goes with our study results, that the risk of be having a head injury or of death even on a bike share system seems to be lower uh, than people riding their personal bikes in cities with bike share systems. But um, what's interesting is we have a helmet law. Our bike share system provides helmets to every single, at every single bike. Um, but we've had people, or Megan's had people out doing counts, and they found that, in fact, even here, uh, people wear helmets less often on the bike share bikes than on their personal bikes. It's not quite as big a difference than in places without a helmet law. But yeah, I don't know why that is. It's very interesting. Yeah, well, it must have something to do with the whole slow cycling. I mean, that's, it's quite a tank that you're riding when you're riding <laughs> yes. this. Uh, it's amazing to see the, the level of nuance that we're getting into when it comes to this type of research. It's, it's mm -hmm. encouraging. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I mean, if people want to hear from more from you, I know you're, you're on Twitter. Uh, I am. What's okay. your... Uh, it's just my first initial K and then my last name, Teske, T-E-S-C-H-K-E. -E. Nice. Great. And anywhere else that you... Uh, we have a research website where you can get access to most of our published papers and we try to have pages with um, as much as possible lay summaries of the research results. Right. Great. Well, thanks very much for doing this and, and I hope to uh, hear more from you before you end up retiring. Ah, <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for having me. Hey there, I'm glad you're still here, and I hope that means you got value out of this conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, there's a few things you could do at this point. You could leave me a review on iTunes, or anywhere else you may have listened to it. You could also mention it to people in your network, or you could just give me some feedback. I'm just getting started with this, so it's always great to hear that people are listening. And I'm definitely interested in hearing how I could improve as a host, or if you have any guest recommendations. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and take care.